Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 20. And this evening we return to this 20th chapter. It's been a little while since we've been able to look into this book. And we're returning now to the time period immediately after the tribulation. Uh, This is after the battle of Armageddon and at the beginning of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. Now, just to catch you up on a few details, uh, the events that we're talking about here are after the initial appearing of Jesus. When he comes back in the rapture, he's going to uh, translate all believers in, that are in their, in their living bodies. Those are going to be changed to be made like him, taken on into heaven in the rapture. Just before that, the bodies of those that have died in the Lord, believers, their bodies are going to be raised and they'll be given glorified bodies rejoining their spirits that are in heaven. And then the earth is plunged into seven years of tribulation, and that tribulation time is God's judgment upon the earth where he is purging the earth and preparing it for the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And during the last three and a half years, at least the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, there was a person named or called the Antichrist who's going to rule. Uh, he's Satan's vassal, and he's going to rule the world at that time. And his kingdom is Babylon. And it's the resurrection of the old kingdom that started right after uh, God destroyed the world with a flood. And it's the successor to that kingdom where idolatry first appeared upon the, on the earth. And where it was really man's first rebellion against God. It's the continuation of that kingdom. And it's uh, under the Antichrist, it's going to be a worldwide coalition of nations that God is going to bring to a very violent end. And the end of that kingdom is the Battle of Armageddon. It's a terrible bloodletting that's described in the end of chapter 19. And it's when the righteous king, the Lord from heaven, king of kings and lord of lords, appears. And this is really the main event of the second coming. And it ushers in God's kingdom upon the earth. Now, in the last part of chapter 19 and verse 20, we're told that the beast, who is the Antichrist, is taken along with his helper, who is the false prophet. These are two men that have deceived the world and caused them to follow after the Antichrist as God. And they're going to be taken and thrown into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And so they will become the first inhabitants of Gehenna hell. Well, something else has to happen before God's kingdom on the earth begins, before it can come in full bloom, and that is that Satan has to be dealt with. He's the instigator of evil, and for man's rebellion to be fully put down and for sin to be held in check, the great tempter has to be taken care of. And so this is what we're reading about in the first three verses of chapter 20. Now, this evening I have called this the devil's demise. It's the beginning of the end for him. Now, the end actually comes in verse number 10, but these three verses are the beginning of the end for Satan. Now, if you look in Revelation 20, verse number 1, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years shall be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And if you'll think back to the message I preached a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the different views of the millennium. And the interpretation that you put upon these thousand years that we're reading about here in the first few verses of Revelation, and the interpretation 
of uh, how you see those events playing out has a lot to do with your overall picture of what the Bible is all about and what God is going to do. Now, I hope you remember the theological word that I gave you for interpretation. It's the word hermeneutics. Uh, that's the exegesis of the Bible, which is the same word which means the interpretation of the Bible. That's what hermeneutics mean. And so if you interpret the Bible with a uh, spiritual or an allegorical hermeneutic, then you don't believe that the 1,000 years that we're reading about here is a literal time period. You don't believe that Christ is coming to the earth to set up or to establish a physical kingdom upon the earth. You don't believe that Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel are going to be literally fulfilled. An allegorical hermeneutic leaves you with endless possibilities for explaining what's happening here in chapter 20. Now, that's what you find in what is called the amillenary position. They believe that if there is a millennium, that it's unspecified in length and that we are actually in the millennium right now. We're living in the millennial period. So there is no literal kingdom of God upon the earth. We're in a spiritual kingdom, and what we see right now is all that there is. And when the world ends, it ends. There's no tribulation. There's no singular person called the Antichrist. There is no physical kingdom of God upon the earth. But on the other hand, if you believe in interpreting the Bible with a literal hermeneutic, then you see scores of Old Testament prophecies that will be fulfilled right here in chapter 20. Uh, The kingdom of Israel will be restored. Uh, Christ will be sitting on the throne of David, ruling from Jerusalem, and there will be an everlasting kingdom. And you see Satan literally bound, and you see a golden age that comes upon the earth where God is going to restore the world to peace and prosperity, uh, the entire earth. Evil is restrained, and you see that during that thousand-year period. The literal hermeneutic is what we call the premillenary view, and that's what we believe. The divine order is set forth here in, this, in these chapters of Revelation. So there are seven years of tribulation, and then the king comes. There's the battle of Armageddon, and that's when Christ brings his righteous army of redeemed men and angels to this world to fight against Satan and his evil angels and the armies of the world. And then God destroys them. He binds Satan, and that's the beginning of the kingdom. So this is really then the king coming before the kingdom begins. He's not coming at the end of the kingdom. He's not coming during the kingdom. He comes before the kingdom begins. And that's basically what you call premillennialism. Everything happens here before the millennial period begins. Now, how you view then these opening verses of of Revelation chapter 20 has a great deal to do with your hope in Christ. And I, I believe that a literal interpretation of these scriptures is the only way that you can truly harmonize all of the scripture. So we're taking the literal hermeneutic, and we see in these verses the devil's demise. This is the devil's downfall. It's his judgment. And this has to take place before the kingdom of Christ will be free from the influence of sin. Uh, what we have in these verses is, I mean, it doesn't really tell us everything that's going to happen in the millennium. I mean, there's just a small amount of information given here, but what is given is packed with a lot of 
lot of different information comparing it to the Old Testament scriptures. And so it comes a very, becomes a very fascinating story because what we're dealing with here is another world. We're talking about another age. It's unlike anything that's ever been seen before. A world where Satan is not in control of things, a world without Satan is totally incomprehensible to our human mind right now. We've never seen anything like this. And it's going to be a a pleasure to be able to talk about it when we get to that part. But before we get to talking about the character of the kingdom, there are these three verses in the beginning of Revelation 20 that should be a cheering section for every single Christian. And that's because God is going to bring his kingdom upon the earth. He's going to bind Satan up. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom going to change forms after this thousand years are over, but the king does not intend to relinquish control. It is an everlasting kingdom. So after the battle of Armageddon, we move into chapter 20. The Antichrist is gone. The false prophet is gone. And then in the beginning of chapter 20, Satan is the one who's next on God's agenda. So we read in verse number 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan bound him, or, uh, that, and Satan and bound him a thousand years. So this then is the placement of Satan in prison. Satan has to be bound. His ability to instigate evil has to be stopped. His reign as the prince and power of the air has to be over. And to do that, someone more powerful than Satan has to bind him. Now, I remind you that of all the creatures that God ever created, Satan is among the most powerful. It's very likely, I believe, that Satan was at one time the chief angel. His name then was Lucifer, and he was given great beauty and power. He had an exalted position. Ezekiel calls him the anointed cherub. But when he sinned against God, he fell, and then all of that power that he has was transformed into purposes of evil. But we also have to be reminded still that Satan is a creature. He's not co-equal with God. He's not God's counterpart. And as, as proud as he is and as arrogant as he is and as deluded as he is, he's still a creature. And so when the time comes, it's not going to be any trouble for God to empower another angel that's stronger than Satan to come and to bind him and to put him into the prison. Now, this angel, then, that we're talking about is what I've termed the angel over the abyss. And who is the angel? Well, there are some who believe that this is actually Christ. That's because sometimes in Scripture we uh, find that Christ is referred to as an angel, but that's not to infer that he is a created being. Angel simply means a messenger. And people get confused about that sometimes because uh, Christ is the eternal God. He's not a created being. And there are many instances in the Old Testament, and we talked a little bit about it in forum class this morning, the angel of the Lord appearances that we find many times in the Old Testament are pre-manifestations of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't believe that we're talking about Christ here. I don't think this is the angel. There's no indication that it is Christ, and since angels have been used throughout the book to uh, do great things and have great power against Satan, there's no reason to believe that God doesn't empower another angel to literally bind Satan. Well, then who is the angel? Well, I would call this a good guess for his identity is Michael the archangel. 
A good guess, or perhaps informed speculation, if you want to put it that way, would be Michael the archangel. If there is a counterpart to Satan, if there is someone nearly equal or equal to Satan in power, it would be Michael. I think he's the angel that we found in the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, he's the angel that, that whose face shone like the sun and stood upon the earth, and his legs were like pillars of fire. And reading Scripture, you find that Satan and Michael have a peculiar history together. In the book of Jude, for instance, there's a dispute between Satan and Michael over the body of Moses. Now, the Bible doesn't describe exactly what that dispute is, but many people believe that probably what happened is that Satan wanted the body of Moses. Now, we read the Old Testament Scriptures, and we understand that Moses was buried by God, and nobody knows where his, where his tomb is. Nobody knows where uh, Moses is buried. But Satan wanted the body of Moses. And some people think, well, the reason for that is he wanted to make it a shrine. He wanted to make it an idol, thereby he could tempt the people of God to begin to worship an idol. And Michael was aware of the great power that Satan has, and so there in the book of Jude it says that he called upon the Lord to rebuke him. In the 12th chapter of Revelation, we read about a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his fallen angels, and Michael prevails in that war, and then Satan is cast down to the earth. In Daniel chapter 10, there was an instance where there's an angel that was dispatched to give a vision, a message to Daniel, and there was one of Satan's evil angels that hindered that messenger from coming to Daniel. And so Michael the archangel had to come and overpower that angel so that Daniel could receive his message. Now, what we're talking about here, at least to me, this is fascinating stuff because we're, we're talking about an unseen spiritual world. But I caution you at the same time that we don't want to be caught up and have a lot of interest in angelology and get taken in by lots of the myths and legends and things like people in the New Age movement today are saying. What we know about angels comes from one source. And the Bible has limited information about them, and I think there's probably a purpose in that. It's so that we're not tempted to worship angels. God hasn't given us a whole lot of information about them. So we don't want to become overly interested in them and be tempted to worship them. Paul gave this warning in the book of Colossians. He says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The problem that Paul is addressing there in Colossians is the Gnostics. And they claimed that they had superior knowledge of God. In other words, they, they know things that regular people just don't know. And so they had figured out some things, some things that God didn't reveal. And so they had this fantastic idea about worshiping angels. And they did that because they, as Paul says, they were claiming a false humility and saying, well, we can't go directly to God. We can't speak directly to him, so we have to go through the angels. So we worship the angels and we pray to angels. And you find a similar thing in the Roman Catholic Church because in a false humility, they say, we can't go directly to God. We have to go through Mary. We have to have an intermediary between us and God. And so they worship Mary. But all of that is against Scripture. We don't find anything in Scripture about this. Not worshiping angels, not worshiping Mary. That's a violation of Scripture. In fact, it's blasphemous, and it all comes from the evil realm and the works of darkness of the devil. Now, that gives you an idea of one of the many reasons why that the devil has to be put in prison. He is the perpetrator of false 
idolatrous worship, and he has to be removed so that people will not worship anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So it might be Michael the archangel that binds Satan, and we don't know that for sure, but the mention of Michael fighting against Satan in other places of Scripture makes him uh, a viable candidate, I think. Uh, makes a lot of sense, to me at least, in chapter 20. But at the risk of being accused of saying something that's not actually found in Scripture and trying to teach you something that the Bible doesn't actually say, all that I'm going to say is that's an opinion. And if you have a different opinion, that's okay with me. I'm not going to argue with it. It just seems like this would make good sense. But let me reemphasize the point. We don't want to be caught up in wild ideas about angels. Everything that we know about angels is found in Scripture, and there is no other source of authority for the angels than what we find in the Word of God. Now then, regarding this prison and Satan's placement in the prison, what is this prison? Well, verse number 1 calls it the bottomless pit. And the bottomless pit is a locked place. It has a, it has a key to it. And that's the same thing as saying that this angel has authority over it. And so whatever this place is, nothing is going to get in or nothing's going to get out unless this angel or God unlocks it. But what is the place? Well, it's the bottomless pit, and that is the same thing as the abyss. The bottomless pit equals the abyss. The King James Version translates the word as bottomless pit, but the word has actually been carried over almost intact from the Greek language into English, and it's the word abyss. And there's nothing wrong with the King James translation of this. It means exactly the same thing, but it's, it conveys the same meaning. It's the abyss. But what is the abyss then? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the beginning, to the time of creation when God first made angels. Now, we don't know exactly when the angels were, were, were created. Some say that angels were created on the first day of creation. There are some that say, well, angels were uh, created just prior to that, which would mean that it would be impossible to tell what time that they were created because before the first day there was no time. And so we run into that problem of time versus eternity, and we can't talk in anything but terms of time. That's impossible for us to speak outside the realm of time. But we do know this, that there is some point there close to the beginning where angels were created. Lucifer fell, and there were other angels that joined him in that rebellion, and they also fell. And these angels that fell are forever confirmed in their rebellion, so they can't be anything other than evil. They're never going to repent. They're never going to change their minds. They're always going to be evil. God hasn't provided any redemption for angels, so they remained evil angels forever. And likewise, all of the angels that didn't fall at that particular time have been confirmed in holiness. So all of the angels that didn't fall are never going to sin. They're always going to obey God, and they are forever holy elect angels. But when the angels fell... Uh, some of them remained free, and some of them were immediately incarcerated in the bottomless pit, and they're never going to escape that place. They're held in the abyss until the time of judgment, and then they're going to be brought up out of the abyss, and then they'll be judged and thrown into uh, the everlasting lake of fire. So that tells us there's a difference between the abyss and what we know or what we commonly think of hell, which is the lake of fire, the final place where God is going to punish lost men and also the devil and his angels. 
In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them unto chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. There the word for hell is not what we commonly think of as hell. It's not the lake of fire burning. I mean, it may be burning in the abyss, I don't know, but, but it's not hell that we normally think of it. The word that's actually used there in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, is a word that comes out of Greek mythology. It's the word Tartarus. And the Greeks in their mythology believed that's the place where fallen gods were put. Well, of course, we know Peter doesn't have any, any affinity for Greek mythology, but that's the word that he uses here. And it shows us that it's different from what we commonly think of as hell. And then in Jude 6, verse number 6, the same place is referenced where it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of that great day. So you have some of these evil angels that fell, and immediately they were put into the abyss. And so they were never free, and they never will be free. But there are also some evil angels that are in the abyss that are going to be loosed, but only for a short time. And we read about them in chapter 9. So I want you to turn back, if you would, to Revelation chapter 9, and let us review this for just a moment. In chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now go down to verse number 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. And those verses are a description of these fallen angels that were put into the abyss when they rebelled with Satan. And so God's kept them there, and he's going to use them at some time in the future to inflict terrible pain and suffering on men of men on the earth. That happens during the tribulation time. So they're going to be brought out of the abyss for a short period of time, and then they'll be returned to the abyss, and then they'll go into judgment. Now, you think for just a moment about that, about the pent-up anger that's harbored by all of these evil angels. I mean, they've been kept in the abyss for a long time, and they hate God. They're, that doesn't change. They're unrepentant. They're, uh, and then they're loosed, and they come out of, the, out of the bottomless pit, and they have vengeance beyond vengeance. And so God gives them a, a command, and they, he gives them the ability to go and inflict pain and suffering upon men. But he doesn't give them the power to kill. They're only allowed to inflict this suffering for five months. And in the sixth verse of that chapter, it tells us that these men will wish that they were dead. They'll seek death, but they can't find it. They can't die. They're going to be kept alive to suffer. 
And so these are angels that were originally bound, but they're let loose during the tribulation for that short period of time. And then when you get over to chapter 16, you find another group of these same types of evil angels, and these are let loose upon the earth in order to deceive men, and they actually become the ones that, uh, that uh, convince men that they can go to Armageddon and defeat the Lord and his armies. So God uses them for that purpose. Now, I want to talk to you about one more, one more part of this, and, and I think that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this to you. There's also another theory about evil angels, and that is that there were some evil angels that were free, but then they were put into the abyss at a later time. Now, I've called this, thirdly, the wild theory about evil angels. Now, all of the demons that are in the world today are evil angels. All the ones that are free are angels that were never incarcerated. They're, they're ones that rebelled with Satan, and there's an untold number of these, and they're found everywhere on the earth. I mean, there's just, uh, we don't know how many they are. They, they assist Satan to tempt people. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not like God. Satan can't be everywhere at the same time. So he needs a lot of help to do what he does. So he's not omnipresent, but we say that he is ubiquitous. And that means that he appears that he's everywhere at the same time. And the reason that he does so is because he has all of this help of evil angels to to tempt people and do his work. These are the same type of demons that we studied in the book of Matthew when we were talking about the man who was possessed by all of these thousands of demons. Those demons recognized Jesus. And in the 8th chapter of Luke, which is a parallel account to what we read in Matthew when we studied that portion of Scripture, these demons talked to Jesus. Jesus spoke to them. They recognized who Jesus was. Luke chapter 8, verse number 30 says, And Jesus asked him, saying, that speaking to this man possessed with the demons, Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And the demons respond. And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, let me point out to you here that the King James Version translates this as many devils, but it's actually many demons. And that's because there's only one devil. There are many demons, but there's only one devil, gadzillions of demons. So Jesus spoke to these demons through this man, and verse number 31 says, They besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. And deep there is the same word as abyss, Same word translated as bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 20. So these demons don't want to be sent into the abyss where these other evil angels are. Now let me mention that other theory. And there are some people who have an idea that there are other evil angels that were once free, and they did roam the earth, but then they did something to be thrown into the abyss. Now we find this in Genesis chapter 6. If you turn there for just a moment... Uh, This is a scripture that many people are confused about. There's always a lot of questions about what Genesis chapter 6 means. And the time period that we're talking about here is, in Genesis 6, is right before the building of the ark when the wickedness of men was great on the earth. Now, verse number 5 in Genesis 6 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, if you look just before that in the first verse, it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, 
and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. That dates the flood. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now here is where we find the wild theory about angels. The sons of God, in verse number 2, is interpreted to mean evil angels. And so these evil angels decided that they wanted to further corrupt man. And so they came to the earth and they had relations with human women. And in verse number 4, it says, When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And so they believed that these angels, I mean, the ones who believe this theory, believe that these angels and women cohabitated And from that came this super race of half angels and half men. And they were giants. And this wild race, they think, is the source of many mythological characters. So they think that mythology does have some basis, in fact, that people are referring back to these creatures that roamed the earth because they were half angels and half men and all sorts of weird things. So they believed then that this abnormal race was part of the cause of God destroying the world with a flood. And so God killed all of that race in the flood, and that's why you don't see any half-men and half-angels running around today. And what God did to punish those evil angels is to put them into the abyss. And so they think that Jude, verse number 6, that we read just a moment ago, is referring to these evil angels that cohabitated with the women, and as punishment, God put them into the abyss. Now, to me, that's a fantastic idea. And I don't mean fantastic in a good way. I mean, that is a wild theory. That's not like anything we see in Scripture. Angels were not created like men. You know, some people ask, did, did Adam have a navel? Well, I, you can be sure of this, that there aren't any half-demons and half-men with navels. I can promise you that. So angels don't procreate. And I think that's one of the points of Jesus saying that people um, won't be married in heaven. He says that we're going to be like the angels of God in the sense that angels don't procreate. And, and contrary to the Mormon idea that, that there's unbridled sex in heaven and all the wildest perverted dreams that you ever had are going to come true, there is no sex in heaven. There's no procreation in heaven. So I don't think that Genesis 6 is referring to fallen angels and angels having sex with women. And so from that, this great race of evil men was born. So who are those sons of God? Well, I think what it's referring to is men. They're referring, it's referring to men who came from the godly line of Seth. I mean, these are men that should have continued to follow God, but what they did was to forsake their faith, and they married evil women, and the children that they had were evil just like they were. And by the time this was over, over a period of 120 years, the whole race of the world, with the exception of Noah and his family, had been corrupted, they were perverted, and God gave them space to repent, and they didn't repent. And so God destroyed the world with the flood. So I, hope, I think that helps us to understand a little bit what the Bible means by bottomless pit and how that's different from what we think of hell. It's not hell. It's a separate place. If you want to call it a holding tank for evil angels until they're thrown in the lake of fire, you could call it that. Some people have compared it to getting thrown in the county jail. 
and being held there until you get thrown in the penitentiary later on. So it's a holding place for these evil angels. And it may have many of the same characteristics that hell has. It may have the same, very same type of, uh, of punishment there, same fire and those kinds of things, but it's not the final resting place or final place that God is going to put these evil angels. So you have all these kinds of theories about, about these angels, but, but I don't think that that's what Genesis 6 is talking about. Now, when we come back next time to talk about this, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. And uh, probably another question that would, should be on people's minds when you're reading this is how is Satan bound with a chain? How do you take an immaterial being, a spirit being, and how do you bind him with a chain? So we're going to talk about that a little bit in the next message. But as I finish this up tonight, I, I, I want to remind you that when the kingdom of God comes upon the earth, it is truly going to be a wonderful kingdom. Satan is going to be moved out of the way, and then we'll see how much of a difference that it really makes when Satan isn't here. Now, there are some people that think, well, that's the end of sin. But despite what Flip Wilson used to say, and I'll date all of you a little bit if you know my reference, he used to say, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil never makes anybody do anything. People do what they want to do. The devil influences, but the devil doesn't make anybody do anything. And so when the devil's gone, it doesn't mean that it's the end of sin. The only way you get rid of sin is to get rid of sinners. The only way you get rid of sin is to get rid of the human nature of sin. And that's not going to take place during the millennium. It's going to happen at a later time. And so God is going to take, uh, take care of sinners. And he's going to remove, remove all sinners out of the world. And in his everlasting kingdom, the final form, there will be no sin. But the important thing for us to remember right now is that God can take sin out of the way now. And I mean that he does that through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is able to take our sins away from us and cast them into a place that's deeper than the abyss. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And so though we may still sin after we're saved, yet Christ has taken all of the guilt of sin away from us. And when that happens to you, that's when you enter into the spiritual kingdom of God and if that's happened to you it means that one day you will enter into the physical kingdom of God upon this earth and you'll rule and reign with him and that's also found in this 20th chapter let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the time we've had to look into your word tonight and um, really some fantastic things that we talk about here and things perhaps that we don't fully understand don't have a real firm grasp on but we know this lord that you are in control we we believe your word as it's written your kingdom is coming to this earth satan will be bound and we do look for that glorious time when we're going to rule and reign with you and i just pray lord that every person in this room tonight knows you as savior and that they will have a part of that glorious reign upon the earth bless us as we sing in our fellowship afterwards and we give you the praise in jesus name we pray amen